We had just finished our meal at a restaurant on Rush Street, a restaurant called The Magic Pan that specialized in crepes. It was a delicious meal, but I'll have to say that was not really what I was anticipating that evening. We left that place with two other couples in 1976 and made our way down into the loop of downtown Chicago into a place called the Schubert Theater. Not a movie theater, but rather a theater for plays and musicals. And this particular evening, a musical that had been playing on Broadway for three years had now made its way to Chicago, and we had the chance to see it. I knew nothing about it. I didn't know what to expect. But as we walked in that elegant Schubert Theater, you could sense the excitement among people as they were making their way to the staircase, trying to find the aisle for their ticket. And as you came into the large theater, you could just kind of smell the, the old cranberry velvet theater chairs and the dark polished mahogany wood. It felt like a theater. It smelled like a theater. It had this sense of wonder and surprise of what might be just around the corner. People finding their seat as we did, and a wonderful view of the stage, though I don't think there was a bad seat in the entire house. The little buzz of activity as people are trying to get past your knees and there's no way they had built enough room for that to take place, so you have to stand up and allow the seat to kind of collapse so people can get by. But then there comes the flash of the lights, and you know that it's about to begin. And quiet begins to come over the crowd as the lights go down. And then the curtain opens up. Not a particularly dramatic beginning, it was a little drab, in fact. An old wooden cabin on the stage just to the left of center with some interaction taking place between several characters who had come on stage. Oh, there was a very brief, very brief prologue that had happened by the orchestra, just enough to know how incredibly great this orchestration was. This dialogue led to a song by the mother in this musical. At the end of her song, however, is when things really took a turn. It was noted by the sound of an incredible wind becoming apparent to all in the crowd. I'm not sure how they made the sound. I don't know if it was a piece of metal that they were shaking. I don't know. It could have been some type of synthesizer, but it was something that you kind of felt and looked around wondering if you were going to feel the breeze on your face. But the clothesline out beside the cabin, the clothes on the line began to move, and I don't know how they made that happen, but it began to blow in the wind. I know we were in an enclosed structure, but I started to find myself getting lost in what was taking place 
on the stage. And then there began to be people who appeared on the stage in dark clothes. You couldn't hardly make them out because the lights had gone dim in this scene that was right before us unfolding. And sweet little Dorothy and Auntie M were trying to make their way back to the cabin. And Auntie M opened up the pathway that led underneath the cabin. I don't know how she did it, but Dorothy made this incredible motion as if the wind was blowing her backwards, and then she leaned into the wind, and I don't know how she fell over because I don't think there was anything holding her up, but she leaned into the wind, and then she just floated backward, and the, the sounds, the orchestration, it went from the sound of this rushing wind to the strings that came in, and the strings made this sound as if a whirlwind was beginning to take place. Then came the brass, and the brass added this punch as if there was some kind of storm off in the distance, punctuated by thunder and sounds of things cracking, followed by the snare drum and the hi-hat as it began to ring out, and everything started to sound frantic, and that little shaker thing that people shake made you nervous just because it was shaking, it made you shake. And I can't tell you how much I was caught up in this moment, this moment that seemed to extend forever. And then came this lead guitar, this electric guitar that, mind you, it was the mid-70s, it was an unmistakable sound that was just like Isaac Hayes from the movie of 1971 called Shaft, and it sounded just like that soundtrack theme song as the music played louder and louder and louder. The stage was not still at all. From the right-hand side came this beautiful woman, this dancer, who seemed attached to this fabric of cloth that before it was all over, I'm certain was 100 feet long. I don't know how long it was, but it, it was as if she was pulling this and beginning to make movements around the stage so that it began to look like a tornado was enveloping the cabin. And these people that had come on stage had taken all four corners of the cabin and began to spin the cabin around and around and around. I was out of breath just watching everything that was taking place. How on a stage do you depict a tornado? The genius of the choreographers, the amazing musicians, the actors on stage, whose every movement made me believe they were in a wind that couldn't be stopped. An overwhelming movement that drew me in and made me part of the storyline. I don't know how it drew me in. And my description doesn't come close to the experience itself but I felt fully in Kansas. Frank Baum, 
in 1900, wrote the story, The Wizard of Oz. In 1901, there was a Broadway play adaptation. It wasn't until 1939, I believe, that Hollywood made a film of The Wizard of Oz. I asked the question, how do you translate a tornado onto a stage? There's another layer to that question. How do you translate unruly political environments into a storyline? Because that's the assertion many have made about The Wizard of Oz, is that Frank Baum was attempting to make a commentary about his time. Whether it's true or not, there are portions of his life's journey that certainly weave their way into the storyline. He was documented as a political activist in 1890. He edited a newspaper, a newspaper that had as one of its centerpieces women's rights. And when you read or watch or listen to The Wizard of Oz, you can't help but be taken by the strength of the female characters, the power of what they display, the heroes that they are. Frank Baum's mother-in-law was a famous suffragist. Her name Matilda Joslyn Gage, and she was a co-worker alongside of Susan B. Anthony for women's rights. Couldn't have helped but influenced his journey. His illustrator for his book, a man who also drew cartoons, and whether it's actually true that Frank Baum was thinking of the popular people of the time or the politicians of the time, there is no doubt that there are references both in the play and in writings that followed to William Jennings Bryant, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and one of the cartoons that the illustration person put forth was the publisher, William Randolph Hearst, in the form of the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. This is a long way to get to where we are this morning. <laughs> Could there be a longer introduction? <laughs> well, we're looking at Revelation. It's called apocalyptic. That word comes from the very first word of the text. Apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. The word simply means revelation. Revealing that which has been hidden. Helping us to understand that which has been kept from our view. This is not the only book in Scripture. It's probably not the only passage in the New Testament. Mark chapter 13 has this same kind of language and grandiose themes. Daniel chapter 7 through 12 would be in the same category. The nature of this type of literature 
is to talk more than just about the chosen people, the nation of Israel, a local group of people. It talks about the world. It talks about big brush strokes like we've been doing for the last nine weeks as we work our way through Scripture. It wrestles with the way things are in disrepair or in evil or in conflict and what things will be, the perfect that is yet to come, the peace that will reign, the redemption that is yet to see its complete fulfillment. The writer, John, of Patmos. We believed he lived in Ephesus, somewhere around 30 A.D. to 68 A.D. He was in Jerusalem, but moved to Ephesus in this second portion of his adulthood. We believe that he left Jerusalem just before the city was destroyed. And it was in Ephesus that he wrote this from the island of Patmos. Whether he was banished there or went there for other reasons, we're not completely sure. We're also not completely sure exactly when it was written. Was it written right at the fall of Jerusalem, which would probably be the earliest date, or was it written under the reign of Domitian? And during his portion of reign of terror, as a way to try and encourage the seven churches that were part of John's circuit. Some would even say that it was written or at least compiled later than that, brought together as a couple of works into one final piece. These churches, they're addressed in the beginning of this book, Chapters 2 and 3, there are seven churches. I, I've tried to think the best way to describe in a way that maybe we could understand their distance from one another, their relationship to one another. If we were to imagine that right here in Point Loma, we were in Ephesus. And we went about 50 miles north up to San Clemente. That would be about where Smyrna is, the second church that is mentioned. We go straight north a little bit further, slightly more inland, and we would come in this geography to the town of Pasadena. That would be about the location of where Pergamum is. And then if you head due east and maybe just a little bit south, you'll Come to Riverside, about the same location as Thyatira. Continue on south, maybe taking Route 15, but remember, people were walking back then. We come down to Temecula, and that would be about the location of Sardis. Go over to Borrego Springs, It'd be about the area where Philadelphia was and the church that was located there. Go down to Campo. And you'd be about the same direction from here as Laodicea was from Ephesus. 
This was a nice circular loop that someone who wanted to care for the churches might take on a regular basis. These are the seven churches that were under John's oversight and to whom John writes this letter that was intended to be circular in nature, given to one and then to the other, passed on to the next church or carried either by John himself or a messenger who might be going on his behalf. We then come to the body of this incredible book, a vision that John has where he's taken up into heaven and we find such graphic imagery and symbols it's difficult to fully understand, though we are given several clues. We are told specifically what the seven stars mean and what the seven lampstands mean and what the seven lamps mean. We're told that the linen garments are the acts of righteousness by God's people. We are informed that the angels are represented, the elders are represented. There's this incredible imagery of worship that's going on constantly in heaven. And the storyline just draws you in as you listen to the angels, the heavenly beings, and the elders who are saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. When the lion who appears as a lamb who was slain appears because he is the only one worthy to break the seven seals on the scroll, they say, worthy is the lamb. The song we just heard. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy. Holy, holy. If nothing else, this book should call us to worship. With all of who we are. To be drawn in by music, by sight, by what we hear, by what we see. May all of our senses be engaged. May all of our heart and our mind be brought into the rapture of worship. It beckons us. It calls us. It says don't miss. All around you is a chorus, is orchestration that says I'm alive and you are mine. It is language that speaks about a huge conflict. A conflict between righteousness and evil. But it is so very clear that the promise is absolute. God conquers because the sacrifice of the Lamb is absolutely sufficient. And we're told in chapter 1 and in chapter 5 what this has done. It says God loves you and me. That God has set us free. That God has made us a nation of priests to serve. Those four things. You are loved. You are free. You are a priest called to serve. And if you missed it once, it gets said again. 
the power of what Christ has done on our behalf. The power of this storyline is not isolated to this book. If you've been with us, it has been what's been woven through all of the different pieces of Scripture from beginning to end. The amazing story of creation and the sin that caused separation and being pushed out of the garden. And the story of God's redemption over time, we're calling Abram, that he might produce a people. A people that would receive a promised land. A promised land that would enable all nations to be blessed. Because Scripture and Revelation tells us that Jesus has, from every language, every tribe, every family, every nation, people whose righteousness have been enveloped by the Lamb of God, moved and inspired by God's goodness and God's grace. The wisdom literature speaks of it. History tells us about it. The prophets not only foretell, but they bring out of you, they foretell the image of God in you. The proclamation that you were created in God's image and God's call on your life to allow that image to find full fruition. For Revelation takes us back to Genesis and tells us that the tree of life is ours. Remember the push out of the garden in the beginning? That sin, when Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, lest they eat of the tree of life, in this state, they need to be put out of the garden. And now we find redemption story so complete that the invitation is back into the garden to partake of the tree of life. It's proclaimed throughout Revelation that God finds God's home with and in God's people. The fellowship that was true in the garden. The fellowship that was hinted at when the Spirit of God dwelled in the center of the camp with the 12 tribes encamped all around the centerpiece. God dwelling in the midst. Emmanuel, God with us, taking up residence in human form. The storyline over and over again is the message of this. God's restoration and invitation back to the garden back to the tree of life that we might partake and that we might have eternal life and that that life might begin now. The gospel message is clear. Jesus says, love as I have already loved you. Greater love hath no person than that individual 
laid down his or her life for someone else. And that is what I have done for you, says Jesus. I have laid down my life for you. So that the love that I have will not only be with you, but will be in you. I send you my spirit so that this might be true and that my love might be complete in you. takes me back to the second to last song as I sat there in that Schubert theater. The heroine of the story is talking to Dorothy, actually singing to her, but I won't ruin the song by singing it to you. It's a powerful message when she feels like there's no hope. Much like when John wrote to the seven churches, crushed, crushed under the oppression of Rome. Discouraged and overwhelmed at the persecution. The destruction not only of Jerusalem, oh, but God, the destruction of the temple. but not only the political pressure, but also the ways in which so many of the religious leaders of the time had given themselves over to the political favor of Rome. Had begun to live in such a way that they kept longing that Rome would look on them with favor, give them privileges, justifying it that somehow that would make it possible for them to continue to do good for their communities. Maybe, I don't know, maybe at some level that was true, but where it ended up going was selling out the commitment, the integrity of faith, and becoming in many ways as bad as the political system that pushed so hard against them. How do you speak into moments like that? How do you convey political dynamics? How do you convey the struggle to survive? How do you convey economic woes? How do you convey religious concerns? The language of revelation in all likelihood made much more sense to those who received the message in the first century than it does to us. But it nevertheless provides incredible inspiration for us to hear the message and be alarmed as well. All of the kinds of warnings and grandiose statements that were made, if the behavior was to be dramatically different, John would have told us, but what he says to the seven churches is so simple. He doesn't call us to arms. He doesn't call us to places of rebellion. He calls us to confession. Confess your sins, he says to one of the churches. He says to some, 
you are lukewarm. What an interesting message. It was Laodicea to whom he said that. It was a town that got some of their water from the hot springs that were nearby and some of their water from the cold waters of the mountains. And by the time they made it to the people, the water was neither cold nor hot. It was lukewarm. Does it matter if you know the context? Probably so. He gives such warnings to those who are set up on a hill in Pergamum, the place much like Pasadena that sits near the foothills. And on that hill was the temple to Zeus, the one that was described as Satan, the one in the letter to Pergamum. Be careful of Satan in your midst. Does it matter if you know the context in which it was written? Yeah, probably. The people of that first century probably grabbed hold of Revelation in ways we don't fully understand, but still today it's inspired to teach us, to guide us, to call us to worship, to confess, to no longer be lukewarm, to return to our first love, to do the things we first did when our heart was first warmed to God. The heroine at the close of the play says, or sings, if you believe in your heart, you'll know. No one can change the path that you must go. Believe what you feel and know it's right and time will eventually turn so that you will say, it's yours. Believe you can go home. Believe you can float on air. Then click your heels three times. And if you believe, you'll be there. Believe in yourself right from the start. Believe in the magic that's inside your heart. Believe in yourself, not because I told you to, but believe in yourself if you just believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself as I believe in you. The curtain drops. But what's surprising as this curtain drops is that Dorothy is standing outside the curtain all alone, all by herself, staring off into the dark room where I sit. It's as if she's looking at me. It's as if she's looking at no one. It's as if she's looking deep inside herself. And she sings these lyrics. When I think of home, I think of a place with love overflowing. If I could go home if I could just go back there with all the things that I've been knowing. Wind that comes and 
causes the tall grass to bend with leaning. Suddenly, all the raindrops are filled with meaning, sprinkling every scene, making everything so clean. If by chance I could go back with this new direction, it would be so nice just to be back home, filled with love and affection. Maybe I could ask time to slow up. Then I'd have a chance just to grow up. Oh, time, be my friend. No longer a stranger, but my friend to the end. Suddenly the world seems to take on a new face, but I know where I'm going. Oh, my mind, it's hung in the midst of space spinning, but I know that it's growing. Oh, God, if you are listening, don't make it hard to know if we should believe the things we see. Should we stay right where we are? Should we run away? Or should we leave things and let them be? I know the world that I am in might seem like a fantasy, but it's here that I've found love. So it's real, real, real to me. And I have found that we all need to look in our hearts to find the love that keeps the world spinning. Love like yours. Love like mine. Love like home. The message of the gospel brings us full circle to a call back to home. The true fellowship, the divine friendship, an invitation back to the garden, the place that takes tornadoes and turns them into summer breezes, the relationship that takes a spinning cabin out of control and puts us back into the hands of the master. An invitation to move back into the place of paradise where God beckons us in the garden called home and says, you are the object of my love. You are the passion of my heart. You are the thing for which I have created. You are mine, and I love you. Welcome home. Father in heaven, wherever we have wandered,
You, our shepherd, call us home. Wherever we have gone, you so graciously over time nudge and push and invite and encourage and stay close, moving us closer and closer to your heart, drawing us closer and closer to your love. May the message of Scripture not be lost when we get into the micro-details. May every verse ring true of its own truth, but may it also betray the message of redemption and reconciliation and hope. May it call out from within us your image, the image of love. May we hear loud and clear that we are free, that we are priests called to serve, called to be yours, called to be home. Thank you, Father. We praise your wonderful name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. May it be a blessed week. God go with you and go in peace.